One of the things that's frustrating about about uh, the Air Force doing all of our training is they also give us their culture. So we run around sticking cigars in people's mouths, making them drink Jeremiah weed and uh, wear leather jackets. That's not space. Uh, you know, that's not at all what we do. The Air Force loves its culture and rightfully so. Keep it. We, we need something different. From the Defense and Aerospace Report, this is The Downlink, a podcast about the intersection of space, the space business, and defense. Not just what's over the horizon, but what's happening above it. I'm your host, Laura Winter. Hello, Downlink listeners. First, a little housekeeping. Next week, there will not be an episode. It's time for a wee vacation. The next episode drops on October 9th. That's also the day of the Defense and Media Awards dinner, and the Downlink is a finalist in the space category. I understand that tooting the podcast horn may be bad form, but heck, if I don't tell you this, I don't get the opportunity to say Thank you for listening and supporting this podcast. And thank you to Vago Maradian, the Defense and Aerospace Report's executive producer, and producer Chris Savello for their support in this, the first year of the downlink. Now on to this episode. Anyone who has even the remotest connection to the Air Force knows that earlier this week, the service had its 75th birthday. That's three quarters of a century of being independent from the U.S. Army. So in honor of the Air Force birthday, here's a short clip from my favorite rendition of the official song, Wild Blue Yonder. So where am I going with this? Well, service branches have distinct histories that feed their cultures, and the Air Force song is a representation of both. The song is about flying, air-mindedness, and most importantly, independence. Service branch histories and cultures drive recruitment, are woven into training, and culture in particular nourishes retention because it's oxygen to identity. So when the Air Force celebrates a birthday, it revisits its origin stories and heroes and magnifies traditions. This birthday gives us, in the space domain, an opportunity to learn lessons from the Air Force experience and perhaps even understand where the U.S. Space Force should, as its new song says, boldly reach. The Space Force song is just days old, so I'm going to have to wait for the rock version. But in the meantime, to unpack the history, the lessons from the Air Force experience, and what's applicable to the Space Force, I'm joined by three book authors, all experts on air power, and one of which is also an expert in space power. I'll let them introduce themselves. Here's our conversation. Thank you, Mike and Brian, for coming on the downlink to talk air power. And Coyote, welcome back. You're going to be the flight dynamics officer and steer us back to space at the appropriate moment. 
Thanks, Laura. Yeah, thanks for having us. It's great to be here. Yeah, happy to be here. Thank you. Now, before we dive in, I'd like for you all to briefly introduce yourselves. And please, you all have authored some great books. Please do not forget to tell us about them. So, Mike, why don't you start? Oh, sure. Uh, my name is Mike Hankins. I'm the curator for the U.S. Air Force, Navy, and Marine Corps post-World War II aviation at the Smithsonian National Air and Space Museum. And uh, my book is called Flying Camelot, the F-15, the F-16, and the Weaponization of Fighter Pilot Nostalgia from Cornell University Press. And Brian, you're up. All right. My name is Brian Lastly. Uh, I am an Air Force historian, and I am currently the command historian uh, at the United States Air Force Academy, where I am also an adjunct professor of history. I've written three books about air power uh, and Air Force history, the most recent of which is Air Power's Lost Cause uh, about uh, our air wars in Vietnam. Uh, but probably most pertinent to our conversation tonight uh, is a book I wrote about a World War II general called Architect of Air Power, General Lawrence S. Cuter, and the birth of the United States Air Force. And Coyote, you're my space guy and a regular on the downlink. And when I first proposed this episode, your reaction was, and I quote, I love my Air Force and I love Air Power. So tell us about this and a bit about yourself. Boy, do I ever, and I still stand by those statements. Uh, I'm Coyote Smith. I'm a retired 30-year colonel from the Air Force. I served in several different flying missile space campaign planning and education assignments over the course of my career. Most notably, I was a space weapons officer and uh, one of the last leaders of DreamWorks, which was the future concept shop for space inside the Pentagon. My book was called 10 Propositions Regarding Space Power. I wrote that uh, a little more than 20 years ago, but more appropriate to this uh, show, I published uh, a paper called America Needs a U.S. Space Corps back in 2017, and that triggered the congressional debate that resulted in creating a U.S. Space Force. I invited you all here to take a look at the past and the Air Force to find the lessons for the future of the Space Force, specifically the development of the services culture, because as Peter Drucker said, and then Mark Fields of the Ford Motor Company made famous, culture eats strategy for breakfast. So to understand the present and the future, that means we need an abridged history on how the Air Force, once it had shaken off the shackles of the Army, forged its culture. Brian, the floor is yours. Well, I think it's important to remember that what we think of as Air Force culture, uh, and kind of important now that we have just passed the 75th anniversary, uh, 75th birthday anniversary for the United States Air Force, uh, that we have to remember that, that that culture and that identity goes back much farther than 1947. I mean, we could go all the way back to, to the Wright brothers, right? Or we could go all the way back to World War I. But in developing an identity and a unique culture, I think the important years there are 1918 to 1947. So that's post-World War I, right up until the creation of the United States Air Force. Uh, and there's a there's martyrs in there, there's ideologues in there, there's there's demagoguery in there. Uh, but really in those those interwar years, there was a kind of a core group of individuals who really started to think of the 
Army Air Corps and later the Army Air Forces as an organization that should be independent and separate from the Army. And that only air-minded individuals, that is to say, those who flew, those who bombed, those who attacked, only those air-minded individuals should really be in charge of, of air power in the United States. And they were the ones who were really advocating for a separate air force up until the service separated in 1947. Okay. And before moving on to the near past and the contemporary period, I've got a question. What was it about, let's say, Vandenberg or even say Billy Mitchell's story that even now has resonance 75 years to a century later? Yeah, it's it's really interesting. I tend to think, and I've said this before, that all Air Force history kind of flows from the Mitchell Arnold LeMay school of thought. Uh, and I wrote about this in Architect of Air Power, that there, there are other individuals who have not gotten as much of the limelight as those three. And look, I'm, I'm not degrading them in, in any way. They, they certainly deserve uh, what has been written about them. Uh, but Mitchell was uh, a towering figure. Uh, he was an overbearing figure. He was a, a very difficult individual to get along with. Um, his subordinates loved him, but no one who was equal or above him uh, could really stand the guy. Uh, Benny Fuloy, another early air power pioneer, viscerally hated Mitchell. Uh, and so into the background were individuals like Westover and Mason Patrick, um, who did a lot to, to get us towards independence, but they were lost uh, in the very, very large shadow of Billy Mitchell. Uh, and Mitchell kind of brought around him a group of acolytes, uh, most notably Hap Arnold. And th this group of acolytes were the ones who really took the idea of an independent Air Force and that that air minded this uh, that I spoke of earlier and moved it forward. Uh, now, of that group, uh, uh, the the World War II era who comes in after uh, after the interwar period, most of the general officers who uh, were made famous by World War II, had trained at a place called the Air Corps Tactical School. Uh, and, you know, we, we have places, you know, we have books where we talk about the bomber mafia, high altitude precision daylight bombing. But a lot of the identity and the culture that, that's going to go on to become the United States Air Force uh, was born at Langley Field and later Maxwell Field, where the Air Corps Tactical School was. So out of that group, that's where you, uh, the, you're going to get the, the stars of the United States Air Force. Uh, Vandenberg, Larry Cuter, uh, both Hal Georges, uh, everyone who was anyone in the United States Air Force in World War II went through the Air Corps Tactical School. And how do those stories present that resonance today? Yeah, I think, you know, if we're if we're going to discuss uh, space power or or the way in which air power relates to space power, uh, what you had at Axe were a group of like minded individuals who basically came to the conclusion that, look, the army, the army cannot run the air side of things. Uh, the organization is going to be too large. Uh, the missions are going to be too varied. Uh, it really takes. Uh, not only not only the individuals, but we really need our own funding stream. We need our own procurement. We, the air-minded individuals, have to run the air side of things. 
You know, I, I really like the quote you gave about culture eating strategy for breakfast. I think that's a really interesting way to look at it. And, you know, you mentioned Ford and I think looking at corporate culture like that is something that helped me kind of try to understand what's going on in these early years of the Air Force, because it is kind of a similar dynamic. If you think about, you know, what's the culture of a place like Apple or a Google or somebody that where there's kind of these core leadership figures that kind of set a tone and the Air Force has that in people like whether it's Billy Mitchell or Hap Arnold or somebody like that setting this tone. But what makes the Air Force a little bit different is that I think in their case, and Brian, I don't know if you would agree with this, but culture in a lot of ways is built around a strategy. It's this idea of strategic bombing as the way to win wars, allegedly. Um, the, The faith in that idea becomes a core aspect of Air Force identity and culture. And so at this moment of the end of World War II, moving into the independence of the Air Force, you've got all these big, larger than life leadership folks like Arnold kind of setting that tone and saying, this is what we're going to do. This is what we're about. Um, And they're setting a vision. And part of the vision that you see with Arnold too, it's not just about strategic bombing, but it's about the power of technology. And so you get these cool speeches with with Arnold in like 1947 or certainly the late forties. And he's talking about things like autonomous aircraft systems and guided missiles and stuff. And he's looking so far ahead to things we still have not even achieved today, or at least not unclassified. Uh, But uh, at least we know of, I guess, but um, you know, he's setting that vision uh, in a way that's really powerful. And I think that becomes a core part of that identity that, in a lot of ways is still with us and we can unpack, you know, what happened in the intervening years in a minute, but I'm curious what Brian thinks about all that. You know, I'm, I'm reminded that I wrote a chapter several years ago uh, called born of insubordination, culture, mm. professionalism and identity in the air arm. Uh, and it was in that chapter. I talked about this, this idea of maverickism that the, the air force has writ large. Uh, Mitchell was going to go and do it his own way. Arnold was, was to a degree going to go and do it his own way. Uh, but that idea that, you know, thank you very much, but we're going to we're going to go out and do what we think is best for the national security of the United States was very important. So when, when you combine that maverickism with that that technological bent that that Mike talked about, uh, you have a, a group of officers uh, who are who are forward thinking, but perhaps uh, a little a little less than they should be uh, in, in listening to the powers that be. Coyote. Yeah, you know, there's something that that we uh, we oftentimes overlook, but it's very much how we recruit even today. Flying is cool. Flying is just as cool today as it was then. Uh, and these cool factors really are important. That literally is how we recruit people and retain people is the cool factor. And my Air Force and Air Power has it going on in spades. So to continue in doing a disservice to the depth and breadth of the Air Force history and culture, and I apologize, this is just a weekly podcast, and it's usually all about space. But for this next part, I'm ceding the floor to Mike. Now, in your book, which I started reading this week and highly recommend, In your book, Flying Camelot, you really hone in on how the cultures and even subcultures within the Air Force drive decisions of every caliber of importance. 
and define a service's identity. Could you explain like who are the primary drivers of that Air Force culture and identity today, 75 years on, and how did they even rise? Yeah, that's a great question. And the way that I look at culture is a little bit different than how Brian does. Not, I mean, we both have a lot, you know, of intersection there, but you know, I look at the kind of subcultures that are going on because you have this kind of large Air Force culture that forms and it's based around this idea of strategic bombing, at least by by the time World War II is is underway. Um, and, and in the post years, you know, there's this whole idea in the Air Force and Kurt LeMay allegedly said, you know, speaking to your point about the cool factor, he would say, you know, flying fighters is fun, but flying bombers is important. And I think that's a good window into how, you know, big Air Force is thinking in those immediate post-World War II years. But there's a subculture under there that really thinks those fighters are important too. And I really enjoyed looking at the Air Force through this lens of competing subcultures. And so you've got these kind of clashes of institutions um, the Air Force is having some clashes with the other services, certainly kind of externally, but there's a lot of internal clash as well, uh, as some of these folks are, you know, feeling a little bit left out. A lot of the tactical guys and a lot of the, the fighter community um, that was very prominent, say, in World War I is much less prominent in World War II and after. And so you start to see some tension rising, not with all of them. And I should say, I think this caveat goes for everything we're talking about now. When we're talking about culture, we're drawing with broad strokes here. You know, not everybody fits every element of a culture. I'm sure there's a lot of bomber crews that were not 100% on board with like LeMay's culture and stuff. And the same is true of fighter pilots. Um, some of them are like your stereotypes and some of them are not. And that's that's worth acknowledging. But I think the trend that you start seeing as you get into something like a Korea and then a post-Korea into the beginning of Vietnam, there's, you know, strategic bombing is not playing as big of a role as a lot of people expected that it might. And that's probably because we don't want to blow up the whole planet with nuclear weapons. So uh, a lot of roles are being done by smaller tactical fighters. They are performing in a strategic bombing role in a lot of times. And sometimes you have big strategic bombers like your B-52s doing tactical close air support missions. Uh, which is not really how people thought this was going to go. And so there's a, a shift in cultures that's happening as the ideas that the Air Force was based on are kind of challenged by the kind of new paradigm of the Cold War, uh, right? So something like Korea, Vietnam, it allows these fighter communities to have more of a voice and more of a, a stake in leadership. I mean, if you think about just the personnel changes, right? So like. After World War II, so many people that rise to power get promoted through the ranks in the Air Force. They're former bomber crews and bomber pilots and navigators, things like that. And that's where their experience kind of came from. Um, and they're the people like making the star ranks uh, in, in a lot of cases. By the time you get to the early to mid, especially to the late 60s, most of the people getting into the general officer ranks are former tactical pilots. They're either fighter or attack guys for, for a large part. So you start to have a leadership that has a completely different background in terms of what they were flying, what their experiences were. And it's not to say that all these generals are parochial and only concerned with their own communities. I don't, I don't think it's like that necessarily, but it certainly is a shift in how the Air Force is thinking and approaching these problems uh, to the point where you get to a moment, and Brian's written a whole book about this in his uh, Air Force Way of War, which is a great book. I'll plug that. But 
he talks about this moment when you get into 1991 in the Gulf War, you have all of these tactical aircraft doing these kind of strategic missions and vice versa. And the blurring of the line between tactical and strategic becomes such that the subcommands of strategic air command and tactical air command, that used to be two separate organizations, kind of merge into air combat command, uh, which I think is a very interesting cultural moment. If you think about those used to be completely separate worlds, both in terms of doctrine and, and how they're being used and also just culturally, and now they're coming together. So I, I think there's a, a big shift in through all those years, but through all of that, I think it would be a mistake to say that strategic bombing goes away. It doesn't, right? That's still a core part of how the Air Force conceives of its role is that they still think strategic bombing is the way to win wars. That's how we're going to, that's how we should be using air powers. How I think a lot of people would say, and that idea going back to Arnold of of technology, uh, what some people would call technological exuberance remains a core part of uh, Air Force culture throughout that as well. If it's okay, I'd like to jump in here on two points that that Mike said. Uh, so let, let's go back to the to the post World War II era. Uh, there was there was one general in particular who who traveled around. He had various commands. Uh, he did transports. He did fighters. He did Air University. He did the Pacific Air Forces. He commanded NORAD, the North American Air Defense Command. Uh, if it had been a piece of the Air Force, he had commanded it uh, from fighters to bombers to transports. He had done it all. Uh, he was up for the job of chief of staff of the Air Force. Uh, and the guy that I mean, it's really not a competition, but the only other guy who made sense to be the chief of staff was Curtis LeMay. Of course, Curtis LeMay becomes chief of staff of the Air Force, even though that what was what was. LeMay's job after World War II, well, he had basically commanded SAC uh, for seven, eight, or nine years. I mean, he had been there forever. So to show you how dominant that strategic culture was, you had generals who had gone off and done all sorts of other things. But at the end of the day, the Air Force wanted a bomber guy as its chief of staff. Uh, There's one more point I wanted to make with regard to what Mike said. Uh, And Mike talked about how we view uh, culture. And I always think of, of the Air Force as the big blue culture. And uh, Mike talked about the subcultures under there. The Air Force might be unique in that if you ask, especially pilots, and maybe Coyote can talk to this a little bit, but if you ask them, hey, what do you do? They're probably not going to say, oh, I'm an officer in the Air Force. More than likely, what you're going to get from them is, oh, I fly the F-15, I'm a Viper driver, I'm a buff driver. Uh, And so it tends to be that the operators in the Air Force tend to identify themselves much more with what they fly than with the the grander big blue culture overall. Yeah, I think it was Carl Bilder who said, if you took the airplanes and moved them to a different service, everybody would follow the airplanes, not the service. Yeah, that's very true. Uh, Brian, to come back to your question there, you never need to ask a pilot what they do. They will tell you. <laughs> and the faster your jet goes, the faster they will tell you. <laughs> and that's part of our culture. Yeah. This ties in, you know, when you have individuals who identify themselves as per the machine that they pilot, 
that speaks to an independence and something that I have heard from various folks um, that, yes, are involved in space power, but have come from the Air Force family is that big thread in this culture from the point that the Air Force was created and established and got its own offices and its own secretary was the absolute fear of losing that independence. And that being independent is really deeply ingrained into the DNA of the U.S. Air Force. And I, I don't know if you could explain that a little bit, um, because I think it's kind of interesting when you think about the Space Force coming out of the Air Force, it too would have that same DNA. Yeah, I've, you know, I don't know that I could give you a, a specific answer, but I've always said that the Air Force has an irrational fear that the Army is going to one day march back in and take back over. I'm reminded uh, several years ago, you know, probably a, a decade now that there was a book written called Grounded, The Case for Abolishing the U.S. Air Force by Robert Farley. There were fits inside the Pentagon, uh, especially in the Air Force corridor about this, as if this were a real thing uh, that were going to happen. I've done other podcasts where people have said, well, surely you and Rob Farley must be uh, enemies. You, you must be um, on opposing sides. No, I, I like Rob a lot. I think it's a very thought-provoking book. I don't think it's going to happen. Uh, but there were a lot of folks inside the Air Force who took the book, for whatever reason, very seriously. Uh, and so I've always said that the Air Force has this irrational fear uh, that they're going to be taken back over. I would be willing to bet, I'd go out on a limb here uh, and say that especially with as new as the Space Force is uh, and with the way in which it was created, uh, that there are those inside the Space Force who do fear that they are going to get taken back over by the Air Force and uh, the service is going to go away. Uh, I don't think that's any more realistic at this point uh, than the Air Force being rolled back up into the Army. But, you know, it's a topic for conversation. You know, you, you raised some really good points and it's worth looking at what are the arguments that the Air Force has when it becomes independent in the late 40s or, or when it's fighting for its independence, I guess, maybe in the decades leading up to that? Why are they saying they need a separate service? Because that's an important question that you could ask about Space Force as well. And, you know, there's several battles in World War II where the airmen feel like the Army commanders that are assigning aircraft to do certain tasks don't understand how to do air power right. And that they're losing battles or they're losing aircraft or they're losing people um, that they don't have to lose because these army guys don't know what they're doing with the airplane. And, you know, there's, there's a good case to be made there. I think there's a, there's a strong case to be made in some of the specifics that they will point to. And I think that's always been the air force argument is like, we know how to use aircraft because we can send it further. We have a different way of looking at the battlefield. We have a different way of looking at operations and strategy that the army just doesn't get. And whether that's true or not is not something I can answer, but that's the argument that is to be made. And you have all these guys making that argument in the forties. You've got, I mean, old Billy Mitchell's dead by then, but like before that, Billy Mitchell's running around making that argument. You've got Hap Arnold making that argument. Um, what I think Space Force, what I haven't seen, at least not out in the public very much, is an understanding or somebody making that case to the general public, 
why do you need Space Force to be independent? What is the mission set that it's doing that other services can't handle? And, and why is that necessary? I know those arguments are out there. You can find them if you really go look hard. But I think the general public is struggling to understand that. And, and, and maybe that's something we could talk about. Well, aren't we lucky? We have the very man who made the argument to begin with. Coyote, the floor is yours. Well, you know, uh, in a meeting that we had here at Maxwell Air Force Base with General Dave Goldfiend, he came into the meeting uh, not wanting any independence for space. And we convinced him in the meeting that, look, the, your Air Force has become the Army. <laughs> and, and your space assets have become the new Air Force. And that's not a competition against air power or air power's dominant role as the leading form of delivering firepower to the battlefield and flying remains cool, but space has to take care of itself. Um, it's a, remarkable. We just we told him, look, just just read all of Billy Mitchell's writings and take the word air out and put in space and take the word army out and put in air force. And the book still reads just as well. And he started nodding his head and eventually he got it. It was remarkable. It was a fantastic meeting. The, um, the big sales thing for, for why you want to have a separate and independent space force, it depends on who you had to talk to. First, we had to talk to Congress. And Congress was already very tired of the Air Force coming back and saying, all of our space programs are broken. We need more money for them to do investigations and find out the space programs are doing really well, but the aircraft programs are struggling. But you have a single pot of money out of which you're paying for it. And you're, you're making sure your air programs are, are closing out and finishing and you're not getting to the space program. The other side to that is airmen recognized very early on that regardless of whatever other missions you want to do, you want to get to that strategic attack. Mission number one is air superiority. If you can't secure the air so that you can flow your assets through it, you can't do your job. And unfortunately, that is the situation that we're in today. By the way, we do not have an independent space force. We have a space core in the Air Force, which is called a space force. We are still under the Secretary of the Air Force. Those arguments that are not being made out there because our general officers are not free to take a position contrary to the Secretary of the Air Force. Uh, I am, however, because I speak my own opinion and I'm presenting that here today. And my opinion is not that of any other organization out there, although it ought to be. Um, just to finish out this thought, there is a mantra that the Air Force gave our space cadre, and it is support to the warfighter. It's the same mantra that the Army gave airmen in the First World War and the Second World War, because airmen were not the warfighters. Yeah, you do some fighting, but you're sitting down when you come into the battle area. The soldiers at that time did not understand the, the combat aspect of aviation. They get it now, but they didn't then. Lastly is we need to get to that space superiority so that we can continue to provide those the services that we provide. By the way, the warfighter is the smallest community that your space force supports. Overwhelmingly, we are supporting the global economy and each of the other instruments of national power, diplomatic, informational intelligence, um, and military itself, and of course, economic. Don't lose sight of the fact that the annual valuation of GPS alone to the U.S. economy for all those amazing things that it makes possible 
is over is approaching 400 billion dollars a year that's more than half of the entire dod budget that gps alone is earning tax revenue for the us government it's a very different animal this space thing and this is why we need to have full autonomy from the air force as airmen did in order for us to advance those arguments and boy my fingers are crossed but i knew that we needed to have we could we had to crawl walk and run Running as being a fully independent service with a separate secretariat. We're going to get there. I, I would imagine that we're much like we were in the 1930s, mid-1930s, when they established the General Headquarters of Air Forces in, at the Pentagon. Now, I'm going to lean heavily on Carl Bilder's book, Masks of War. The Air Force worships at the altar of technology, as I imagine the Space Force does. And both are rightly in love with their toys, whether it's planes, satellites, or constellations of satellites. And for now, at least, it's the pilot cast that's leading both services. So here comes the hard questions. You know, at the top, Coyote, what lessons should the Space Force take from the birth of the Air Force? Like how to remain a separate service? as opposed to being absorbed back into the Air Force, as some continue to actually predict. Well, one of the things that is key is ensuring that our programs are properly funded so that those contractors can make sure plenty of money goes to political candidates' campaigns. This is just a reality in uh, in the 21st century. This is kind of how that type of stuff works. The other thing that's important is we must internationalize our space programs once they get started, because a space program has a very difficult time surviving between administrations unless it has international partnership. And so those are the types of things that we're looking at. In particular, what airmen have taught us is that you must have your own kind of professional being the boss. Um, with the rise of the fighter pilots after Desert Storm, Air, U.S. Space Command and Air Force Space Command were commanded by fighter pilots who had never had any assignment in space whatsoever. They didn't speak the language. And so for a period of, gosh, so many, a couple of decades, the conversation never left the elementary school speak because the boss couldn't hang in the conversation. You know, and before the fighter pilots, we had bomber pilots that would just be parachuted in over the top. And this makes me think of something that uh, Coop wrote in his book, A Few Great Captains. He, he grabs a quote from one of the early air power greats and says, you know, the soldiers will tell you you need an experienced commander of those land forces. But they sure feel comfortable parachuting in somebody that knows nothing about aviation to sit on top of our flying units. That's one of our big major lessons. The other thing that the Air Force taught us is invest in the technical capital of your people, your people that are going to operate those systems. You know, we, we not only spend millions of dollars to make a pilot, but many more millions of dollars to make weapons officers and test pilots. And they build a community around them that when they go into a contracting session with, with contractors to buy some type of new new aircraft, new munition, we are the masters. The Air Force makes its own masters of that. Unfortunately, the, the, the training and education experience that we give our space professionals today does not meet that air power standard of excellence. And so oftentimes on the space side, we have novices sitting there being talked into what they must buy. 
Now, Brian, you said earlier that you really thought that that DNA, that independence, you know, is very strong within the Space Force and that the Space Force will remain independent, but it still does need to forge that identity. I mean, no amount of, you know, interesting uniforms or, you know, the new song today, that that's, you know, that that's kind of like the decoration, right? So I'm wondering from your viewpoint, you know, what do you think should be a lesson that the Space Force should take away from the experience of the Air Force? So I think you have to remember that when the, the Air Force gained its independence uh, on uh, in September of 1947, the 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 culture was there, yes. The identity was there, yes. But the organization and the structure was there as well. So Air Training Command already existed to to train our pilots and our bombardiers. Tactical Air Command already existed uh, to perform those roles and missions. Uh, most importantly, Strategic Air Command already existed. So from that perspective, the the organization was already there. This was something that the Space Force itself kind of had, but but not entirely in that, yes, you could say Air Force Space Command, a major command did already exist, uh, but it's it's training pipeline for its officers, uh, its schools, its officers attended. Uh, we're still all Air Force and, and are today all Air Force courses. So there was not in, in 2019 uh, as large an organizational structure uh, that could just take off one hat and put on another. Uh, this, this is very evident by the fact that who provides logistic support at Space Force bases? Air Force officers. Who provides security forces at, at Space Force bases? Uh, Air Force uh, defenders. That's going to be that way for some time uh, into the future. I am probably not as uh, trying to think of a positive word here uh, on as, as Coyote thinks about where the Space Force is going to go uh, and where it's ultimately going to end up. Uh, I am not as perhaps uh, prosaic, is that the right word, uh, is, is thinking they're going to get there as fast as Coyote would, would like them to. Um, yeah, all in there. And Mike, yeah. I mean, you've got such a vast view, especially from your post there at Smithsonian. And, you know, you walk through history every day on your way to get a cup of coffee. What lessons do you think that the Space Force should be taking away to really forge their you know, own identity and eventually, you know, have their own secretary, let's say? Yeah, I think two big kind of areas come to mind. And one of them, Brian, you just kind of spurred my thinking on this. And it was this idea of the organizational aspects, but also the pipeline and training. We've got to start thinking about, you know, all the Space Force courses that you mentioned as being kind of within the Air Force still. Do we need something like a Space Force Academy and a Space Force Command and Staff School and and all of those kind of big support educational institutions that, I mean, Yes, Space Force, as you described, Coyote, is still a core underneath the Air Force, but so is the Marine Corps for the Navy, but they have their own institutions for training and pipeline, all, all those things. And, they, and that's one of the ways 
that they're able to maintain such a separate uh, and strong sense of separate identity uh, in the Marines. And maybe the Space Force needs to look at something like that. But the other big thing... Sorry, go ahead. Sorry, I I think it's important, Mike, to remember that, uh, and I, I wanted to mention this, that the Air Force Academy is commissioning Space Force officers now. Mm -hmm. Uh, And for the foreseeable future, uh, and I would actually tend to think that that probably for forever, I'm I'm sure Coyote would disagree with me, uh, but the idea right now is that the Air Force Academy will remain the commissioning source for Air and Space Force officers. There there are currently no plans to have a separate Space Force Academy, uh, which would clearly be set up in San Francisco, as we all know. <laughs> well, that, th- hang on, let's let Coyote jump in here. We've been talking yeah. over him. One of the things that's frustrating about about uh, the Air Force doing all of our training is they also give us their culture. So we run around sticking cigars in people's mouths, making them drink Jeremiah weed and uh, wear leather jackets. That's not space. Uh, you know, that's not at all what we do. The Air Force loves its culture and rightfully so. Keep it. We we need something different. Uh, the science and technology that, that that we're involved with doesn't even come into factor with most of the types of aviation things that, uh, that the Air Force does. I'm not talking about sensors and other types of uh, electronic capabilities that can be fused. That That's not what I'm referring to. But the method of space operation is just so radically different. You know, here's, here's a scale thing. Right now, today we have a, a few thousand satellites on orbit that are operational. By the end of this decade, we are going to have over 40,000 satellites on orbit. And based on registrations, by the end of the next decade, there are going to be over 300,000 satellites on orbit. And none of them are defended, not even our own military satellites. We've got to get after that. We've got to get after that mission. The other thing that the Air Force taught taught us, taught me, taught those of us that sit around and think about it, the Air Force always had a vision. They always had an Arnold. And I would say that, you know, your LeMay was a visionary as well. I would say most recently, the guy that was a, a luminary visionary was John Jumper with the types of things that uh, he dreamed up. Many of them would drive his staff crazy all day. Uh, random thoughts while shaving was a dangerous thing for John Jumper because he could revolutionize the Air Force in a heartbeat. He was a great commander and a good visionary. Uh, we've benefited from that vision. We don't have a vision in the Air, in, in the Space Force today. At During the testimony of, of General Saltzman, and Salt did a great job, by the way, and but he was asked what his vision was, and he just basically said, you know, well, we're, we're going to have to deal with these space threats. It didn't really lay out much of a vision. Of course, you have to understand he's testifying before Congress and you want to be liked and not give them the bill on on the first day. Um, There is a problem that we face. There are some, what would I call them, disincentives to advancing space power. There is this big idea that if space gets a bigger share of the budget, that all the other services will get a smaller share as a result. And so what we see is an Air Force that doesn't want to see a space force grow, and we see a unified space. Space Command, where all those components from the other services want to make sure that those roles and missions that get assigned to them by Congress through the Unified Command Plan don't get filtered down to the Space Force, because if the Space Force grows, the other services will shrink. That's the thought. Yeah, uh, Coyote, I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on this. I mean, my understanding was that after the initial standup of Space Force was that the, the space assets of the other services were going to eventually chop over to 
the United States Space Force, but we we have not as of yet uh, seen that happen, have we? No, not in any great numbers. We have had uh, many people transfer from other services into the Space Force, uh, but not the capabilities that those other services have. They are intent on presenting their capabilities through uh, U.S. Space Command as components. Uh, what this does, unfortunately, is you'll find the same set of equipment that does the exact same mission scattered between each of the services where that should be consolidated. We may have made a mistake by making U.S. Space Command a geographic combatant command as it's currently assembled. It possibly could be designated as a specified command as the Strategic Air Command was, and therefore you'd have all the positions in U.S. Space Command filled by Space Force personnel. That way we'd keep our expertise in-house and you wouldn't have those other services floating people that are just learning how to spell space floating in over the top to command major portions of it. Well, you know, there's an interesting historical parallel there too with the creation of Air Force uh, back in the day. And you had the Army wanted to have its own air power and the Navy wanted to have its own air power. And this argument that there's duplication there and you know, it took a lot of infighting and service rivalry to get to the kind of agreements where, okay, the Army has its, you know, close air support helicopters and its, you know, sky cavalry concept and stuff. And the Navy has Navy aviation and, and those roles got split up, but it was not an easy road and it, it led to a lot of kind of confrontation. But Brian, you said something too, I wanted to jump back to about this leading to what you were saying, Coyote, about the trouble getting a distinctive culture you made that joke about San Francisco, which, of course, is a Star Trek reference. I think Space Force has, I'm going to go out on a limb here. This is just my personal opinion. So if I'm way off base, or if you disagree, that's fine. But I think Space Force has a little bit of a PR roadblock. And some of it is just because I think people in the general public, again, not in the military, not in Congress, but in the general public, have trouble accepting, like, what is this? Is this even real? You know, when I, at the museum, when I tell people about Space Force, I get chuckles. Uh, and I even have kids asking, like, isn't I thought that was a bit, you know, like a lot of people don't understand it. And I think seeing the connections to pop culture and fiction is fun. It's cool. I love Star Trek. I like Star Wars. I get it. But it's not helping make the case for why the service needs to be taken seriously. So when we see stuff like people doing commissioning ceremonies in cosplay, I don't think that's helping your case. It's fun. I get it. I would maybe want to do that myself, but I don't know if it's helpful. So that's something that's worth talking about, maybe. There, yeah, well, there's also there's also can, the distinct can I, separate... can I can I jump in though? Because I don't want to lose that point. And this is coming from the standpoint of a journalist and who I interact with. Now, let's say I want to do a story about Space Force. Who do I call up? The Air Force. That's who is in charge of the Space Force narrative. Um, so I think it's I think it's kind of hard, and it, it goes to the point of of what Coyote was saying that you have people who are air minded who have been charged with representing a, an organization that is space minded, and more often than not. Yeah, the the queries go unanswered, to be honest with you. And I should say that maybe I shouldn't be surprised because, again, I'm asking something about space-mindedness of people who are air-minded, and they're the ones who, you know, hold the pen in that particular arena. Laura, it's an important point, again, to go back to the idea that all of these support functions for the Space Force remain Air Force officers. That includes public affairs. Those are U.S. Air Force officers right now 
uh, not U.S. Space Force officers. So the Space Force has its operators. It doesn't have its its support personnel. Well, I'd like to ask Mike uh, in particular, you made mention about the, the conflicting roles and missions between the services where they overlap, where everybody had elements of aviation. Uh, going back to what they called the, the uh, not the Casablanca, the Key West Agreement. Right. Could you talk about that just a little bit? I know I'm putting uh, you on the spot. You are putting me on the spot. I don't know that I could go into too much detail off the top of my head, but yeah, I mean, the Key West Agreement is is one in a, a series of kind of confrontation points between uh, really all three services are in conflict, right? The Army, the Air Force, and the Navy in terms of who's going to do what with regards to air power and how to use it. Um, what ends up coming out of some of these is that the Air Force says, okay, Army, you can have your rotary wing, you can have your helicopters, right? But we're going to keep the fixed wing assets. And there's a sense that, the, you know, like what Brian was saying earlier, the Air Force is worried that if the Army has really any fixed wing assets, that there's they're just going to refold the Air Force underneath them at some point. So they want to limit that as much as possible. So it, it really limits that. And the, and the Army's argument, of course, is we need air power to support our troops on the ground. The Air Force isn't doing that because the Air Force is only concerned with strategic bombing. So that's where that conflict lies. And it kind of ends up being a, a division where the Air Force basically ends up saying, if you want to use your helicopters to do whatever it is you want to do with them, go ahead. But we're going to have our fixed wing assets and we'll provide the close air support that you're asking for. The Army doesn't feel like that has been held up to in a lot of cases. Um, and, and some of those arguments still exist today, but, but yeah. And now there's something that has remained with me from the first time I heard it said that Space Force guardians are war fighters. And please remember, I want to keep this discussion tethered to the lessons that we can derive from the Air Force for the Space Force. But I'm just wondering, you know, what does a Space Force warfighter actually look like? I mean, what is that identity, that culture? They're driving and operating satellites. So I'm just not convinced that that kind of cultural mindset actually fits with a satellite operator. And Coyote, I am specifically asking this of you, and I would love to have the opinion of the other two. Well, uh, to start out with, never let the Air Force define what a warfighter is and then try to apply that to a space. Um, I, I will say that flying is fun, but space is important to so many things beyond just military operations. Uh, if you just take a look at GPS, 24 satellites on orbit, let me tell you what a center of gravity that is. If we lose GPS, we will lose high-speed internet. Your mobile telephone towers won't be able to communicate back and forth with each other because they won't be able to make the ones and zeros intelligent. Our electrical power grid and our electrical generation stations, we have used the GPS timing signal to integrate into the harmonization of those motor generators and the distribution of power. If we lose GPS, we will have rolling brownouts and blackouts across the U.S. electrical power grids because we have not been building coal, uh, oil, and uh, nuclear power plants to keep up with our growing population. Instead, we've been embedding that GPS timing signal to maximize the output. An estimate that we saw is that we are now putting out over 137 percent 
of the power that those systems were originally designed to, to generate. And that's because of GPS. That's just one system. And I can go take talk to you about infrared systems on orbit, other types of spectral imaging systems on orbit, and their contributions to our overall agriculture. One of the reasons that we would love to see a Space National Guard with units here in Alabama is in having a little off-table discussion with a member of government they want to have a Space National Guard work with their Department of Agriculture to get the, the top quality government data with regards to uh, the, the farming potential and quality of soils. I mean, this is just simple type of stuff that's not in the warfighter's bag. Uh, when, when the Air Force goes to war, they go to war in some theater. The Space Force has to do all the same stuff all around the globe, all the time, whether it's war or peace. To us, it doesn't matter. Our space tasking order is just as busy today as it will be tomorrow, as it will be during Armageddon. It's just a very different animal. But Coyote, they're not bomber or fighter pilots. Like I said, never let bombers or fighter pilots define what is a warfighter and then try to apply it to you. Yeah, you know, Coyote, you said something really funny earlier about how the early Army guys would make fun of the Air Force for going to war sitting down. And I think that kind of struggle to define what a warfighter is is something the Air Force has always struggled with even before now, you know, when ICBMs and like missile commands became a really important part of the Air Force mission in the 60s, there was a similar identity struggle where, you know, the Air Force is trying to say, oh, you guys in the missile silos, you're warriors and you're tough and you're, you know, aggressive. And they're like, well, we're, we're sitting in a bunker with a key. <laughs> you know, it doesn't feel like I'm a warrior, uh, but they are an important part of what's going on in the Air Force. They're an important part of, you know, fighting the Cold War in that sense by providing deterrence. And, you know, there's there's a little bit of a stereotype, I think, that being important in the military means you're in the mud with a gun and, and you know, putting your life on the line. And um, it's not to take away from the people that do that type of mission as well, because that's an incredibly difficult. I can't even understand what that must feel like. But someone in the pilot seat or in a crew seat uh, is equally important in contributing something, even if they're sitting down, as they would say, and someone in a missile silo is important and someone at a computer is important. Um, and we haven't even talked about the role of cyber in all of this, which is also equally important. So I think expanding exactly like you said, Coyote, expanding our notion of what it means to contribute to the national defense has to change. It, it's not going to be sitting in a trench with a rifle uh, all the time. There are still people that do that. And there are there is still infantry. There is still artillery and, and all of those important roles too. Um, but they're all part of the same thing and the same effort. And I think that is worth being acknowledged. I would add, uh, Mike, that the missileers also had the, the blue flight suits, which I think would be a, a key component in, in a separate space identity uh, that should come back. Although I've also advocated that the uh, the orange flight suit uh, should come back for wear and conus, but I'm I'm not getting any traction with that. You know, um, on a little bit of a more serious note, you know, back in the 50s and 60s, and I'm, I'm I don't have the exact numbers, but it was along the lines of 80% of the Air Force were flyers or operators, and 20% were support personnel. Uh, whereas today, it's exactly the opposite. The, the tail is significantly longer, and only about 20% of, of the Air Force's operators, uh, with 80% flowing into some type of support function. And yes, I'm using that very broadly. 
Um, and so I haven't even, we haven't even discussed the, the culture of support functions and, you know, how do they accept or not accept the concept of being a warfighter? And lastly, guys, I have to ask you, what do you think of the new Space Force song? You know, the problem with the Space Force song is that no matter what they came up with, it was it was a 100% lose-lose scenario. There was no way that they were going to release something that I think the vast majority of people were going to go, well, that's really cool. And, and to go back to what Mike's point about how, you know, I love, I love Star Wars, I like Star Trek, but those type of, of cosplay things or those type of relationships don't necessarily help the Space Force. I, in fact, in a way, they're, they're direct hindrances to it, right? Like if you spend any time on social media, all you saw yesterday was was well at least if you're in the mail twitter community all you saw yesterday was was plays off of various things for the space force song you know be, be it space balls or the imperial march or what have you um so i kind of feel bad there was i don't think there was any way they were going to come out on top in that one no matter what they did mike what do you think of it i mean i had that same thought even before i clicked play i was like i, I don't know what I'm expecting, but I know whatever it is, most people are probably going to be disappointed. I mean, I can't imagine what they could have done that would have made everybody happy. And so they they came out with a song that sounds a lot like the other military service songs, and I guess that's fine. But it 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 didn't strike me as um, as having much of a chance to succeed. I don't think. Well, let me You're ask also you this. asking. Well, well, let me ask you this though, Mike, mm -hmm. especially because I know that you really dig into, into culture in your book. What should a services song deliver? You know, that I don't, I don't know. Um, I do have, <laughs> it's funny to, to talk about music. I actually have a background in music. Um, before I became a historian, I was a jazz major in, in my undergrad. Uh, and I, I still like to, to play and, and compose and stuff in, when I can, but you know, gosh, I, I'm thinking if someone had come to me and said, write a, a military service song, I don't know what to do, because I'm not sure what it's trying to achieve. Certainly appealing to the public is probably not its primary audience. It exists mostly to get the people in the service excited about their mission and give them some sort of core chant or some idea to, to rally around. And I think it could do that in in the same way that something like Wild Blue Yonder is not a great, you know, chart topping kind of hit, but you know, people like singing it at their ceremonies and it gets people kind of pumped up. I I think it might have that potential. The lyrics, you know, are a little vague and and the uh, boldly reaching line I thought was a little too close to, you know, to boldly go. The but you know, I'm nitpicking in, in that regard, but that, that was just my kind of gut reaction. I think it'll grow on people um, over time. You're also asking for a 21st century organization to come up with something strikingly similar and yet very, very different from a bunch of 19th century and early 20th century songs. Mm -hmm. I'd like to I'd like to jump in there that my analysis of this is uh, the Air Force went to a Coast Guardsman and an airman to write the song for the Space Force. It's the most joint song out there. <laughs> I, 
Um, it, it, it's also obvious to me that some of the language in there that the authors did not speak space and it remains earth focused. Um, yeah. But, you know, I mean, I, I can't criticize the composition. I don't know enough about space. I don't know enough about music to really uh, get into that type of stuff. But I, you always are looking for something kind of happy and buoyant. You know, the the Navy's anchors away, my boys. And uh, you have the Army caissons come rolling along. Of course, the U.S. Marine Corps theme song. We all used to sing that in elementary school because it was like this wicked cool song. You know? <laughs> and uh, I guess I have to listen to it a thousand times before it catches on because I've heard those other ones so many. But I've heard before, you know, I spoke to gentlemen this evening from from others who uh, care very deeply about the Space Force, that it seems very much tethered to Earth. And I pushed back on that saying, well, we're human beings. This is where we come from. But why are we still calling the sky blue? Because when you're in space, the sky is black. Hearing a pin drop. Yeah, no, I was, I was <laughs> just, I, I was contemplating the awesomeness of how you said that. It's like, my gosh, he's like a poet. Yeah, no, it was that. That was I had the same feeling. Yeah, it was wow. There, end of episode right now. That's it. <laughs> it, it it's too bad your microphone's standing sitting in front of you because you could drop it on that one, Laura. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you guys so much. Thank you um, to Mike to Brian and also to Coyote for making the time to join me and to talk about Air Force and Space Force in light of the 75th birthday of the U.S. Air Force. Congratulations, Woo! Air Force. And yes. hopefully we can have the same kind of celebration for the Space Force. That will be coming in December. Thank you very much. Thank, Thank you. you. It's been great. That's it for this week. If you like what you're hearing, follow the downlink on Twitter and subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcast platform. For the latest defense news and analysis, listen to the Daily Defense and Aerospace Report podcast hosted by Vago Meradian and listen to Cavish Ships to hear the latest on what's happening in the maritime domain. I'm Laura Winter, and thank you for listening. Thank you.